Hey, welcome to Wayfair. This is Aaron. It's week six of our Lenten journey. Each week, you'll have a chance to hear some good music and a story from somebody at Central. From doctor's offices to moonlit military outposts, we'll learn a little bit about each other, and we'll discover that we're not alone on this journey. Each week, we'll listen to scripture, we'll pray together, and we'll remember places where we can join in God's work of peace and justice. Now, I grew up just south of Lexington in Richmond, Kentucky, and in high school, I remember swearing that when I got out, I would never live in this town again. So, of course, now we live about 30 seconds from where I grew up. Seriously, I timed it. And like most high schoolers, I was often bored, and so one Saturday, I decided to take a drive. I went to Tates Creek Road in Richmond, and I turned right, and I just kept going. I rolled down the windows, put on my favorite Kansas tape, and I just drove. And in a while, the road ended. Fairly abruptly, mind you, at the river. I stopped, and I was about to turn around, but then a man waved me forward onto the ferry. And being the polite and respectful high schooler that I was, I did what he said. I drove onto the Valley View Ferry, and I went across the river. I'd never been this far out Tates Creek Road before, and I'd never been on a ferry either, but I figured I knew the way back and I should be fine. I kept on going, and eventually I realized that I was in Lexington, though I was still in unfamiliar territory. My trips to Lexington were generally limited to a guitar shop or to the mall. And then the road eventually turned into High Street, and I was downtown. And finally, after getting nowhere, I decided to turn around and go back home. Though I wasn't ever lost, for most of the trip, I really wasn't sure where I was. And you know, that feels a lot like life to me. We're often unable to suss out our precise location in the grand scheme of things. We may have a general idea of our direction, but what's around the bend is impossible to know for sure. And though we may know the way back home, it will be different there when we return. And so will we. Often the best we can do is offer a holy guess at what road we might take and then see where it leads. After all, is it the path we take or the way that we walk that path that matters most? Like the beautiful prayer from Thomas Merton. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. So, listen to your heart. Be attentive to the spark of the divine within you as we journey together.
sound on a borrowed ride And everyone around said this was the time When a king would come and make a stand Bring God's country Said you didn't think Things would work out that easy Hosanna In the highest Save us
almost across Jerusalem, they came to Bethsaida and Bethany of the Mount of Olives. Jesus gave two disciples a task, saying to them, Go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you can find tied up there a colt that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, It's master music, and he will bring it back right away. They went and found a colt tied to the gate, outside on the street, and they untied it. Some people standing around them said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they left them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread out their clothes on the road, while others spread branches cut from the fields. Those in front of him and those following were shining Hosanna blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. After he looked at the everything, because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the twelve. Today we're talking with Deborah Alexander. Debbie's been at Central for a few years now. She grew up in Lexington and went to Bryan Station High School. She did her undergrad work at EKU and then went to Syracuse University for her graduate studies. She recently retired from the Department of State and came back to start the next chapter of her life. We had such a great conversation, I didn't have time to fit everything in that I wanted to, from transitioning into new friendships and relationships and new stages of life to finding God in unexpected places. We covered a range of topics. And though Debbie has spent a lot of time overseas as a diplomat and relays some of those stories here, I think her story highlights the many similarities of the human experience, whether we find ourselves in a mosque in Afghanistan or a country church in Kentucky. And in the end, whether our path leads us far from our roots or stays closer to home, we all have the same questions about our purpose and significance. Here's Debbie. I don't have moments of epiphanies. You know, I often wish I had the road to Damascus clarity, you know, sort of this voice speaking to me and sort of this clear mission ahead of me. And I can't say that I've necessarily had those experiences. But I did have recently, just in the last couple of weeks, this understanding. As I said, again, I'm in this great transition in my life because I found myself, I've come back to Lexington after not having lived here for 35 years. And and all the things they tell you that are big stressors in your life have happened to me in a course of just a few months. I lost the job or left the job that I loved so much at State Department. Um, my mother became very ill, and so I found myself leaving a country that I had lived in for quite a few years, Afghanistan, leaving an agency that I had really loved working for, State Department, 
leaving a city that I had nominally lived in, Washington, D.C. Truthfully, I had been overseas more than I had been in D.C., but it was sort of where I was putting roots down. A parent ill. I had a number of friends killed in Afghanistan. And, and I myself had lived in this other country and in a number of other conflict zones, and I hadn't really had time or given myself time to sort of feel the weight of all of that over the years. Mm. And so suddenly all of that, you know, I start this transition of moving from D.C., uh, looking for work, but also trying to think about what kind of work what I want to do, um, caring for my mother who's actually doing terrific. But all this transition and churning and hope for transformation, hoping that I'll come out on the other side of sort of this renewed life. I've always been over-analytical and always, you know, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? What is our purpose? What is my purpose? And I've come to, you know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about recently is that, you know, we all... I don't know if I have answers yet, or I get answers, but then those answers maybe don't seem to satisfy or ring true any longer. Maybe that's just the evolution of our lives. And the answers that I thought I had when I was in my teens or my 20s or my 30s or 40s, those answers continue to change, right? But the one thing now that's so compelling to me is that it's not about for me right now, at least, is not about finding purpose, necessarily still important, or meaning. It's not about fear of failure, because right now I'm sort of at this jumping off point in my life about what's next. And it's not so much about fear of failure or fear of success. It's really about fear of insignificance. Mm. I think... And maybe that, I think that may have something to do with as we get older, you know, when we start looking and reflecting on, I have more years behind me than I have in front of me now. So I think you start thinking about significance. And it's a little bit different than meaning. It's a little bit different than purpose. I haven't quite put a finger on it, but anyway, those have been my reflections recently is about what is a significant life. I was part of a team at the Department of State that was an expeditionary diplomatic group, which simply means that when there's a crisis, and it might be an earthquake in Turkey, it might be um, outbreak of conflict in Kosovo, or the war in former Yugoslavia, or 9-11, and following work and war in Afghanistan or Iraq. I was part of uh, people who would sort of like send me in and try to start meeting with people to try to reassure them that the U.S. government was going to be sending in, whether it's humanitarian assistance 
or that we'll be sending in peacekeepers or soldiers or that we'll be bringing in other assistants to try to help them rebuild their country and actually begin that dialogue with people, both elites and with people just in the villages, warlords, leaders, tribal elders, and try to establish some sort of a a bridge Mm. with people. I've met with a number of fairly notorious people, and that's what happens. We have to meet with the sinners. We have to meet with those who have been corrupt. We have to meet with the warlords to have a conversation with them, Mm. to try to gauge, can they be part of this new plan, this new world, this new country, or not? And I'm, I don't think I've ever been badly treated. And I know part of that had to do with my position, just being with the United States government and being a diplomat. I was in some pretty questionable circumstances sometimes, and there were times where I knew that I needed to probably exit the meeting pretty quickly because it, it felt like something was about to happen or that I had overstayed a welcome, or that it was time to leave. But, you know, I've always been well-treated, and it did open conversations for a lot of people. I can remember oftentimes being in a situation where I would be welcomed, you know, and where a warlord, I would be coming into a village, and we had set up a time to meet, and where a warlord literally would have donkeys out and there would be flowers for me and there would be when I would get to a particular location usually his home tent marble palace whatever it might be there would be tea and cookies and food set out and I would be welcomed but I learned quickly not to misunderstand that welcome because that welcome didn't mean that I would always be welcomed, and it didn't mean that I would always be understood, or it was just the first step of something to follow. The whole Palm Sunday story, there's some, I think I always liked that story, not only because I understand what it's like, to sort of be welcomed, but also understand that it won't always be like this, mm. you know, and and to enjoy that moment and enjoy that experience, but also to understand that what follows after that isn't necessarily, mm. you know, the welcome. What I've always clung to and what's always been inspiring to me and that I've held to is the garden Mm. before the betrayal. That that is the part for me in my own faith that is more core than even crucifixion or resurrection. Mm. There's something about that scene that I've always been called to. It's that humanity that and the person who understands loneliness, understands questions about 
who am I and where am I going and why am I doing this? And that always resonates with me because I feel like those are the same questions in my life right now. And so that story really is the one that I've been pondering a lot these last couple of weeks in this Lenten season, you know, about what can I gain from that. Christ even, again, a sense of depression and abandonment and loneliness, being lost going forward and not sure what lies ahead, but still one foot in front of the other and having some faith that something really enlightening, wonderful, is lies there, is can happen. I was at a staying at a military safe house and uh, around noontime this man on a white horse shows up and then he has a couple of other horses behind him and my you know our afghan staff go out to the front door and it's ishmael khan has come to talk to you in the late 70s, early 80s, he was a, a young captain. He and a group of men had finally grown quite tired of the Russian occupation and the Russian soldiers and what they were doing to the local Afghans. And they literally sort of rose up one day in the marketplace. And, um, and sadly and tragically and horrifically, massacred a number of the Russians. And that really began a long conflict in Afghanistan. But Ishmael Khan, um, through that sort of bloody battle, you know, then he became, you know, responsible for how do I care for this region of Afghanistan and over a number of years acquired resources and, and men and became a well-known warlord he hears you're from Kentucky oh my god and I'm like okay I haven't ridden in a few years <laughs> but I feel like this is something I'm gonna have to do and so they saddled me up he never spoke to me the entire time he stayed in front but that was the beginning of this conversation with him. And what followed after that was a series of uh, afternoon teas where we would talk about, you know, how did he want Herat to be rebuilt? What could we do to help rebuild the community? And what role did he want in a new Afghanistan? Was he interested in running for office? Was he going to be starting a political party? Was he going to be someone? We'll get back to our story with Debbie in just a moment, but right now we're going to hear from our own Raleigh Kincaid and a Linton Medley that he sang a few years back. I am a poor 
Let's get back to our story with Debbie. I was in, it's um, a southwest province in Afghanistan called Zabul. And it's one of, you know, of the provinces of Afghanistan. Afghanistan has 34 provinces, like we have 50 states. And it's one of the provinces that's sort of considered by most people in Afghanistan as a more remote, mountainous, backward country. And in fact, people would say to me, it's the Kentucky or the West Virginia, which is always unfair, but, you know, and finding a way of trying to explain to me Zabul province, they would say something, you know, it's the Kentucky of Afghanistan. Well, I was sent there to live for about nine months. So I'm living on a military, it's a U.S. military base with Romanian soldiers. So it's U.S. soldiers and Romanian soldiers. There's about 6,000. I'm one of the few women, the only woman civilian at the base. And there was no chapel on the base. So the Romanians decide to build a chapel on this, this military outpost. And so they built this beautiful Orthodox 
base. And so here in the middle of Zabo province, in the middle of the mountains, in nowhere, they and the terrific woods, woodworkers, and so they, they create this carved walls and carved chapel and this little bitty chapel. And uh, the Saturday night of Easter weekend, they had Orthodox services. And so I wanted to go to services. And so I'm in this chapel of probably about 20 Romanian soldiers, me, the one English speaker, the one woman, and they had brought a priest from Bucharest to conduct services that weekend for the Romanian soldiers at this military outpost. And so, of course, the priest is hes conducting a, a more orthodox service in Romanian, which I understand about three words, and that's it. But again, I didn't need to understand the words to sort of feel a sense of spirit and connection and hope in that room. And then the funniest, the next morning I'm up quite early and it was still dark outside. And I was on this mountaintop and there's hundreds of military vehicles and the moon's out the moon is reflecting down on these hundreds of oh. Humvees and military vehicles. I'm literally like in this reflected pool of moonlight, looking at the stars and this remote mountaintop in the world. And again, this sense of wonder and awe and just conviction of there being some divine presence in this world and tasting that moment, you know. And, and then the funniest thing is, I look down at my feet and there is a rabbit. And I had not seen a rabbit any place. And I remember looking down and just being convinced that I had been sent an Easter rabbit. <laughs> that it was somehow or another that rabbit was about divine and new life. And, you know, I didn't have any Easter candy that Sunday. You know, there wasn't another church service. There wasn't hiding Easter eggs. But that rabbit and I stood in that moment, surrounded by military vehicles with this moonlight and I just, there was no doubt. One of my best Easter mornings. As a child, it struck me, strange even then, that there was such a focus on the blood of Christ, the crucifixion, the life everlasting, the afterlife. And I kept thinking, well, surely there's a purpose for our life here and now. And is it really only about 
getting to that afterlife, which again, I have to admit, is not as an interesting question to me. I don't want to be living my life for the next life. I feel like there must be some significance for how we live in love and in joy and gratitude in this life. I'm not a very disciplined journal keeper. I always <laughs> want to be a disciplined journal keeper. And I buy wonderful journals. <laughs> I have the most beautiful journals. And I will go into bookstores and I'll just like spend hours looking through these beautiful bound books that can be blank pages, yeah, can yeah. be journals, you know. And then I even tried keeping a journal on my phone. You know, I've tried a number of ways of doing it, but as I said, I'm not very disciplined. But on occasion, you know, a couple times a month at least, I'll do some writing and, you know, prayer and thought and reflection and meditation. And I've been like, what is God's purpose for me now? There must be a purpose. What is it? Because I don't know. Because I there's so many things that I'm interested in. You know, and then people, and I went to a, a life coach. And the coach, I've actually been to a couple of coaches. But oftentimes, to no detriment to them, but I'm a psychologist by training. So I think it's always difficult oh, yeah. for a counselor to talk to another person in the helping profession, particularly in the psychological profession, you know, because you tend to think, well, I know that. Or I can diagnose my own problems better than you can, you know. But a couple of the coaches have said to me, you know, you need to rediscover what's your passion. So, you know, I've spent all this, I mean, literally like the last 18 months trying to find my passion, my passion. What is my passion? Yeah. And there are these two epiphanies I've had recently. And one is I don't have a passion. <laughs> I have a number, I have curiosities. Yeah. And I think that's okay. There's a number of things that I'm curious about and I care about, but there's not a singular passion. And then that plays into my, you know, constantly asking, you know, our spirit, the divine one, God, Sophia, Jehovah, Allah, whatever we may call it. I keep saying, what is it you want me to do now? What's my passion? What's my purpose? And I recently <laughs> had this epiphany, and it's like, it's live your life. Mm. Get out there. Do all those things you want to do. You don't want to take some theology classes? Take it. You're working. I'm working part-time down at one of the law clinics with immigrants. Keep doing that. You do construction and do other work with Habitat for Humanity? That's fine. You want to do a little writing? That's fine. None of those have to be the one thing you do. Mm. Because I didn't make it so difficult for you to find your purpose or your passion. This idea that you have a purpose and you're looking for it and praying for it and trying to find it, I wouldn't do that to you. I wouldn't make it so difficult for you, Deborah. I didn't hide your purpose. And I thought, well, maybe... Maybe there isn't one purpose. Maybe it's 
you know, trying out a number of things, doing things that I care for, living my questions. Yeah. So that's been the closest epiphany. <laughs> it's not a big one, but I've just, there's been this enormous sense of, of lifting off this burden, literally just in the last seven or so days of like, stop looking for that purpose in my next 20 years. Something will come to me, and in the meantime, live those questions. And, you know, I've often asked myself the question, if, if I found out that there is no afterlife, whatever that might look like, that there's no kingdom of God as, you know, my childhood church elders would tell us about, if there's no resurrection for all of us, would I follow this path? And it's, yes, because it is for me about the life this man, Jesus, walked. It's not about that reward or that afterlife for me. It's about, I think for me, it's about <clears throat> that it's about love and how do we manifest that in our life and how we live that and how do we practice that and whether it's trying to help protect children and empower women respect and honor other faiths protect LBGTQ friends reach out to other countries that have been in war. You know, all of that has something to do with love. I haven't quite figured that out. Mm. You know, that's the organizing. That's, you know, what I'm trying to think in my own life as I think about these experiences and what is it that sort of connects. But, you know, that's why in faith it's more about living that and trying to figure out how we live that that it is hoping for some afterlife. You know, on one hand, I was taught as a child that you can't get into heaven through good works, but I also always felt like good works is a manifestation of a changed heart and of love and of compassion. isn't clear and we've lost our way, God have mercy. When it seems that hope is gone and confusion reigns, God bring your peace. When our stories don't make sense and we can't seem to find our way, God send your light. In the face of grief, violence, prejudice, hatred, fear, and even death, God help us to find our life, our breath, and our being in you. Amen.
Thanks so much to everybody who helped out today. Thanks to Debbie for her story. Thanks to Riley for singing. Thanks to Kane and Thomas for reading scripture and to Melissa Austin for offering our prayer today. Wayfarer is a production of Central Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, a loving, healthy, and progressive gathering of Christians where everyone is welcome, no exceptions. Find out more about Central at lexcentral.com. This episode was produced by me, Aaron Austin. Thanks to everyone who joined in, and thanks to you for listening. 